Here we are in uh, somewhat of the, the closing verses of Matthew chapter 11. Um, I'm going to, I got, I, I probably gave you a little taste. I've given you a little taste over the last couple of weeks how quickly we can get through a text. And so I, I, uh, I, I, I very much imagine that you, at some point you're going to really start holding me to that. Um, and so I got a little taste of it. I liked it. And so that's going to be my goal. Um, is to, to get in and out of here, especially because it's Mother's Day and we have to beat the other people to the places, right? Um, we're not calling out any names, but uh, Matthew 11, chapter 7 through 24 um, is where we are. And so up to this point in Matthew, as, as I continue to, to read Matthew and study Matthew, I try as frequently as possible um, to essentially read up to the point um, in Matthew where we are, to start from page one of Matthew and to read up to that point, just to continue to kind of get it to my mind. Really what I'm trying to do um, is, you know, my dad was one of these guys. We've got some guys here um, where you can like say the most obscure verse in all the Bible and they're like, oh yeah, that's Matthew chapter five. Um, and so we've got people here of, of all kinds um, with all different experiences who you give them, again, that obscure little word. They're like, oh yeah, Obadiah chapter one. And you're like, What? Uh, so that's what I'm trying to do um, with, with Matthew is to familiarize myself so much with, um, like, like we pray today, not only just the content and not merely just being um, a brain, uh, but to fall more and more deeply in love with the Scriptures um, and with the Savior that the Scriptures show us. And so um, that Savior um, in which we are uh, to fall in love with and that we have been saved by um, also says some very challenging things. Um, Today is one of those texts. Uh, Today is not your normal Mother's Day text. In fact, I think I would rather preach Revelation 5 today uh, than Matthew 11, 7 through 24, uh, because there's just some things in this text that are are heavy, um, that are weighty, uh, but again, ultimately ought to push us to greater love for our Savior, um, and I would say a greater burden um, and call uh, to share the message that he has given us to share with other people. Um, and so that's, that is what I hope the result of today is, um, ultimately. And so as I have read over and over Matthew 1 through now 11, I, I, see, this, I see this pattern, and I think that, that we ought to see somewhat of a pattern. It's one pattern in the middle of many patterns, but one of those patterns are, um, is a pattern of claims and responses, that, that there's a claim made and then there's a response written about. Um, in fact, even this gospel of Matthew begins with a foundational claim to the whole book that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a, that is intentionally a bold claim. That's not just a piece of information that Matthew's given us. That is intentionally a provocative and bold claim that the gospel writer is making, that this is who he is. Um, and, and, and so then we see after this claim, we even see through the next few chapters, the way that people begin to respond to this man, uh, to, to this baby even. We see that, that the evil King Herod responded in a particular kind of way to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Um, we see that there's wise men um, who are not of Jewish descent who respond to Jesus in a certain kind of way. And so really to summarize all of the rest of what's going on up to this point, Jesus then goes on to teach and he goes on to perform miracles, both of these activities provoking a diversity of responses along the way. Um, There is awe, there is faith, but there's also disbelief, right? 
We've seen that through as, as Jesus makes these claims, again, either with his words or with his deeds. I think that we have a lot in Matthew 10 and 11 that show us that the primary, the primary reason behind the, behind the miraculous works of Jesus was to affirm who he was. Jesus deeply cared for those who he interacted with, but Jesus, especially in today's text, is going to show us these miracles are meant to affirm something about who I am. And so um, there's a lot of different responses to him. In fact, Matthew chapter 11 is another chapter filled with claims and responses. Uh, John the Baptist, he hears about the works of Jesus is what it says in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, so he heard something, and then there was a response by John the Baptist. He heard what Jesus was doing. John is in this moment of, of, of maybe despair. We talked a lot about this last week, and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus is really the one. Is Jesus really the Messiah? And so in John's doubt, as we talked about last week, we ought to, church, see something that deeply encourages us, namely in how Jesus responds to this doubt. It is encouraging because it is not uncommon for us, it is not uncommon for us to live in seasons of doubt. Amen? Just me? Okay. All right. Sorry. Sorry. It encourages me. All right. So, um, but it's also encouraging because in the midst of doubt, it's not only encouraging, I would say that Jesus' response is instructive. Jesus' Jesus's response is both encouraging and instructive. And here's why. Because in the midst of John's doubt, Jesus gives John the only sufficient and firm foundation on which to rest, and that's himself. Jesus speaks, and Jesus quotes the scriptures, and Jesus says about himself, I am the one who was promised. I am the one to come. And so this is vital for us. This is instructive for us because it serves as a major difference in how our culture tends today to handle doubt, right? Um, we, we, we doubt things, um, and, and I doubt things all the time, but I think really the crux is not whether or not we doubt, but how do we respond to our doubt? Where does our doubt drive us? Does it drive us to the Savior or does it drive us into further despair, taking instruction from places that will not hold us up? And so we come to verse 7. This is where we're at in verse 7. And we're going to read this together. I know Rick already read it, but we're going to be reading this passage again, which is why you need a copy of God's Word there with you. So John's disciples leave, and notice, as verse 7 says, the claims continue. Jesus now shifts to making some claims um, about what has just happened. Let's read Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. When, uh, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So the disciples have left, um, is, is what the text says. They've left, and now Jesus takes an opportunity to, to address the crowds concerning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. 
and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So on the surface here, uh, what probably all of us notice first, we have this massive claim about John the Baptist. Wow, John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman ever. Um, and so what could this possibly mean? Well, let me just say this, that it won't make sense to us. It will not make sense to us unless we understand that Jesus is ultimately making a claim about himself. So in this claim about who, the John, who John the Baptist is, Jesus' greater claim is a claim about himself. And if we want to talk about patterns um, and, and, um, and, and certain, certain pictures going on in the book of Matthew, that claim that Jesus is making claim about himself is very consistent with what's going on in the whole book. That Matthew, um, as, as a whole book and as a gospel, is here to claim to us, to claim to, to those ultimately who first received this gospel, that Jesus really is the Messiah, that Jesus really is the one who we have waited for. And so this is where that old Sunday school answer serves us well, which is what? Jesus. So what is this, what is this ultimately about? Jesus. Hey, that's a great answer. It's, it's the right answer. So is there a claim being made about John? Most certainly. But here's how we ought to understand this claim about John or we miss what's going on. Jesus says this and Matthew records this because in it, Jesus is ultimately claiming and reinforcing what is true about himself. He's, he's ultimately claiming what is true about himself. The Old Testament, Mal- Malachi chapter three, that very last book uh, before you've got that blank page, uh, that blank page uh, represents lots, many, many, many years of silence. Um, and so the, 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 the last book in, in our text in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, says what Jesus quotes here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So in summary, what Jesus is doing here first is making a claim of himself, He's making a claim of himself. But secondly, he is saying something that John would have had no argument or issue with. John is great because of his association with the Savior. John is great because of his association with with the Messiah. In, in, In his place in redemptive history, John the Baptist serves as a great prophet because he is the final prophet before the Messiah is ushered in. He is the, the final great prophet. John came to proclaim the Messiah and to serve as an instrument of the Lord. John himself, back in uh, the beginning of Matthew, John himself says that the one who I prepare the way for is mightier than I. And so what Jesus is saying here is that John the Baptist is great because the word prophesied about John the Baptist and John the Baptist's position throughout all of history was to be the one who ushered in the Messiah. And so in a way, I would say ultimately Jesus saying, John is fulfilling that. And what that indicates is that I'm the Messiah. I am the one who we have been, who, who you have been longing for. And so Christian, there's a good little application here for us that any goodness or nobility that, that we have is ultimately found in our association with Jesus, right? Our, our goodness, our nobility is, listen, it is really easy these days. I was, I was talking to someone recently, I can't remember who it was, to, to, make, 
to, to make um, a lot of preferences that we have issues of righteousness before God, right? It's, it's really easy uh, to, to make a preference and maybe a preference that we feel very, very strongly about to, to somehow equate that to our righteousness before God. And let me just say that our righteousness before God does not depend on if you are this kind of person. Let me just, let, let, me, let me give one uh, example for me. Um, my righteousness before God um, does, does not depend on if I homeschool my children. I do. I feel very strongly about that personally. But what has happened in our society for many, many, many years is we have taken things that, that maybe we, could, we might could attach wisdom to or prudence to, but in no way are we able to attach our righteous, our right standing before a holy God. And so, church, we see something in John the Baptist that he was not saved by his position as a prophet. He was saved because he had faith in Christ, who would come and would die for his sins. And so for us, any goodness or nobility that we have is ultimately found in our association with Christ through faith in him and no other work, ritual, or deed. Jesus himself says, listen to this, church. This is very encouraging for us. Jesus himself says in verse 11, this is, a, this is one that I, I think you ought to if, if, you, if you were reading Matthew 11 and you read this, you're probably like, wait a second, what's he talking about? In verse 11, look what he says. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What in the world does this mean? Jesus and the scriptures will continually refer to perspectives in, in, in regards to uh, the cross and the resurrection. The, the, the scriptures will continue to refer to perspectives, and that perspective, I believe, is the cross and the resurrection. In fact, Hebrews 11. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, and it talks about the, 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 that, that great hall of faith, all of those great people of the Old Testament who had faith in the promise that was to come, the great faith in the promise that was to come, but there was still something that they did not have the opportunity to see the way that we do. We have a privileged place in the kingdom of heaven because we are on this side of the cross and the resurrection. And so Hebrews 11 talks about the writer mentions all of these greats and their great faith, but that they did not even experience the fullness of what God had promised to them through seeing the son and the work that he would one day accomplish. And so John the Baptist was another who was a great instrument of God, yet in a way is at less of an advantage than us because we have the full picture. We have the, the full picture of the crucified, risen Savior. And there was even a limited perspective that John the Baptist had, as great as he was. Let me just say, like in normal, everyday conversation, I would probably never tell you I'm greater than John the Baptist. Like, you know me, I'm, you know me, I'm just, you know, I preach that word and I am greater than John the Baptist. I homeschool my kids and I, you know, I got six of them and I'm greater than John the Baptist. No, I, I would never say that in ordinary conversation. But Jesus would say of us, church, that the least in the kingdom of heaven, those who are not of noble birth, is, are greater than even John the Baptist. Jesus, by the way, Jesus is going to use 
this logic, the kind of this logic of perspective in verses 20 through 24 as well, when he, talk, when, he, when he talks about judgment. We'll talk about that in just a minute. John the Baptist is great because of his association with the Lord. And church, any goodness, any righteousness that we have is a righteous given to us by a loving, merciful, gracious Savior. And that is what makes us anything that we are. If I have any boast, let my boast be in the Lord, right? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We then see Jesus respond um, to, to rejection. Um, as, I, as I said earlier, a constant pattern of, of Ma- in Matthew is claim and rejection. And so Jesus has made this massive claim that John the Baptist is the prophet the Malachi spoke of and that Jesus is the Messiah of all the Old Testament spoke of and that John prepared the way for. And so now Jesus, in the next section of verses, verses 16 through 23, responds to the way that people are responding to him. So let's read verses 16 through 23. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And so we have seen that John's greatness was in his association with Jesus. And now we see the way that the masses acknowledge Jesus, their acknowledgement of who Christ was. Some people, some people think, and we're not going to go too deeply into this, some people think that there are two uh, kinds of acknowledgments of Jesus going on here, two different crowds um, at, at play here in this section. One, one a crowd responding maybe cynically, and then another crowd um, being, uh, responding in hardened disbelief. There's a shift that happens in verse 20, if you see. So in verse 7... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. So we're not going to get too deeply into to that, you know, um, to that possibility um, or to that assumption. But, but what I do want to just address very briefly um, is that there, there very well may be two kinds of responses here. Uh, you see this, this interesting little thing that Jesus quotes, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Maybe, maybe highlighting just one of the responses to Jesus was that Jesus was calling these people in. Up, up, up here it says, um, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and, being, and, and the violent take it by force. What almost every commentator agrees upon is that what Jesus is saying is that, listen, from, from day one, from day, day one of this, the, 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 the ways of God have, have always suffered um, against unrighteousness. And they've, 
for, and, and unrighteousness and persecution has not held it back. It has always advanced. And I would, I would say that makes sense in the context of John the Baptist, because here John the Baptist is the greatest person who, who is ever born of woman, Jesus says, who's in prison. And Jesus is essentially saying, listen, this will not stop God's plan. This will not stop the way that the church is going to operate in the world against persecution, against violence, against all of, all of these things. And so some people would say that Jesus is quoting this flute, dance, dirge, mourn thing is, is essentially Jesus calling people to, hey, get in on this. Get, get in on this thing. But here's, here's what we do know from this passage. We don't want to speculate too deeply about what all is going on. Here's what we do know um, about what Jesus says. And this is, this is where, where it turns difficult because many of us know someone who is in a state similar uh, to those who Jesus addresses here. And this is what we see, that unbelief is a grievous sin. That lack of belief, unbelief, is a grievous sin. Jesus has shown us, just, just so that you, you hear me right, Jesus has shown us that doubt may very well be something redemptive. He's responded to Jesus. He's responded to John the Baptist and the doubt that John the Baptist has. And Jesus works with that. Jesus says, okay, you're, you're seeking after me. You're, you're seeking understanding. You're deeply seeking this. And, and so Jesus has shown us that doubt may be something redemptive, but in and of itself, in and of itself, there is nothing redemptive about hardened belief. Now, Here's what I'm not saying. That's not to say that God cannot redeem the hardened believer. We have testimonies in this room right now um, that, that can answer that question, that can tell us God can absolutely redeem the hardened, obstinate unbeliever, the one who says, there's no way and I hate him. That the God that I don't believe in, I hate. God can redeem that person. God can redeem that. But there is both great sin and there is great danger in unbelief against God. Unbelief, Jesus will tell us in this passage, is a damnable offense to God. What Jesus says in verses 20 through 24, I think might be some of the most haunting, heavy words in all of Scripture. I don't mean to smile when I say that, by the way. I kind of like smiled. I Maybe, maybe that's my coping mechanism here. But, but what Jesus says in these few verses might really truly might be some of the most haunting and heavy words in all of Scripture. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, as you see in, the, in that text, were places of profound wickedness. They were places of profound wickedness. Not only profound, but renowned wickedness, right? We know of, like, you can, go to, you can go to people who, who know nothing of the scriptures, know nothing of God, and say Sodom and Gomorrah, and like, oh, I heard of that place. Like, those are, those, are, those, are the, those are the, you know, if sin could be ranked, they're it, right? And so they, they were places of profound wickedness and renowned wickedness, wickedness that is even known and talked about and propagated unto this day. But Jesus says here that there is even a stricter, and more severe judgment for those who persist in unbelief upon hearing and witnessing the Messiah. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to people. Look what he says. He began to denounce the cities 
where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What that means is that these cities saw Jesus' works. They saw what Jesus was doing. They saw Jesus fulfilling the things that the Old Testament that they believed in said he would fulfill. By the way, that's the apologetic Jesus uses with the doubt of John. So very graciously, he responds to John and he says, hey, here's, just so you know, part of what I'm doing on this earth is to fulfill what was said of me and these things are happening and that's how Jesus told John and assured John, this is who I am. This is, this is who I am. And so now you've got a response of people not, not doubting through seeking understanding, but those who are hardened in their unbelief in verse 20, and Jesus begins to denounce them because his works were being done before them and they did not repent. And so, again, what Jesus says here is that there is an even stricter and more severe judgment than places like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom then for those, uh, there's stricter and more severe judgment for those who persist in their hardened disbelief than for those wicked cities in their rejection of the Messiah. This is literally what Jesus says in verse 24. And by the way, in chapter 10, verse 15, you can go, see, you can go right back there when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. He says about those who would not believe the message that um, the apostles are carrying. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so Jesus, here's, here's the deal. We've, we've really loved the miracles and the compassion of Jesus. And that's, there's, no, there's no but to that, by the way. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus will also show us that he will continue to tighten and hammer on the sin of unbelief to the gospel of Matthew. And he will tell us there is great cost to persistent unbelief. Again, let me say this. Does that mean that God cannot soften the unbelievers, the, the persistent unbelievers' heart? Absolutely, he can. He absolutely can. I can't remember how I said that, but he absolutely can. And here's, here's what I believe for us, church. I don't believe there is any lack of application for us today. I don't believe there is any lack of application. I think that Matthew, we have to keep in mind all the way through Matthew that Matthew is dealing with a very specific, that Jesus through Matthew and then Matthew in his writing are dealing with a very specific group of people that, let me hear this, I want you to hear this, that is primarily not us. Primarily not us. It's primarily a a group of people in that day that Matthew is writing this gospel to and that Jesus is. But I also don't believe there is any lack of application for us today. And this is, this is what I mean by that. That there will come a day when every single one of us stands before the Lord. There will come a day when every single one of us stands before God. And what will make that day uniquely intolerable for many according to what Jesus says in this text, that what will make that day uniquely intolerable for many is the fact that they were told of the Savior. They were told that in the Savior there is forgiveness. They were told that a Savior came because we are sinful people. They heard the truth of the gospel, that it was for our sake 
that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in that moment before God, the interaction with God will be interaction with God as their judge against their sin and against them rather than the Father who has forgiven their sin. Here's, here's the thing. We will all stand before the Lord. And as we've said before, we will either experience the Lord and see the Lord as our judge or as our Father. And what, what Jesus is saying here is that the works of Christ have been done before you. And what Jesus seems to imply is that if these works would have been done in these wicked cities, they would have noticed it. Imagine being compared, imagine these religious leaders being compared to those people and, and the religious leaders hearing that those people would be better off on judgment day than you. Man, that's a, that's a hard thing to hear. And the reason why Jesus is saying that, let me just say this, is not because he hated the religious leaders. We're gonna, we're gonna see that. Over and over again, Jesus calls them. Jesus Jesus weeps over their state of unbelief. But what Jesus says to them and what he says to all people is that one day we will stand before him. And if you have heard the word of truth, if you have heard the gospel, if you have heard that in the Savior there is full forgiveness, if you had heard that we have a Savior who can forgive my sin, that on that day it's going to be like a I just, I just picture like a, like a screen of all the flashbacks of life. Man, I heard, I heard, I heard. And so here's, it's not quite the Mother's Day message, I know, but it is, it is God's message. It's God's word. It's what God's word has to say. And so I end with just this, with this really brief encouragement for you as a church family. Church family, rejoice this morning because you know God as Father just as Jesus knows God as Father. And in, in the next section of Scripture, Jesus calls out to God as his Father. Church family, you too, through faith in Christ, know your heavenly Father as your Father. And you will never, never know him as anything else. You will never know or experience him as anything else, you will stand before him one day and he will see that the righteousness of Christ has been applied to your sin and you will go in. And this is a great reason for us to rejoice. This is a great reason to remember our own salvation, right? It's a great uh, re reminder of our own salvation. It is a great reason to look forward in hope to the day that we stand before God and are welcomed, before, uh, welcomed by God as his children, not because of any good works we have done, but because of what Christ has accomplished. And then church, I would say just very, very practically, it's a great reason to come with confidence and joy to the Lord's table to receive what God has done for us in Christ, who is our savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope that you give to us. We thank you for the great hope uh, that you give to those who, who have faith in your son. Um, and we thank you for the great sacrifice that your son has made. 
And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would, we would, um, that we would experience all of the benefits of our assurance as children of God. One of those great benefits of our assurance um, is, is, is what we are able to do here, to remember one, one just small measure of grace that you give to us is, is the Lord's table for us to remember what you have accomplished for us through Jesus. And so Lord, may we this morning as your children live in, in, in great assurance because of Christ's promise to us uh, because of your great grace to us through your Son um, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, may, may, the, may the weight and the reality of, of what Jesus has taught in this text um, give, us, give us great, um, great motivation uh, to, to share and to proclaim the message of the gospel uh, to those around us, to those who don't know you, to those who have not been saved, would you, Lord, give us uh, great confidence in this message that we carry? Uh, Father, I thank you uh, for, for the work that you are doing in the lives of many around us. We thank you for who you have brought um, from the nations to our neighborhood um, so that, um, as your word very clearly says in Acts 17, so that they may seek God and perhaps find him because he is not far from each one of us. And so give us, again, uh, great clarity in what you've called us to do and a great confidence um, in, in doing it because we have the Spirit of God with us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.